Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. is Kerry Baker and I'm an acute physician in NHS Fife and Director of Education at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Did you know that according to the King's Fund, 44% of doctors in the UK are female? That's over one quarter of a million of us. That includes 55% of medical students and 54% of postgraduate trainees. If this trend continues, women will make up the majority of medical workforce within the next decade. However, only 32% of consultants and 24% of medical directors are women, and women are underrepresented in leadership and academic roles. Evidence shows that greater gender equality and having women at the top of organisations, not just in medicine, but in the wider world of business and science, results in broader economic benefit, enhanced productivity, and improved culture and organisational performance for everyone involved, regardless of gender. Together, the Royal Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons of Edinburgh, on behalf of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges are hosting an exciting two-day Women in Leadership event on the 27th and 28th of April. The first day will be a hybrid conference at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh in our city centre-based conference centre and also available online via live web streaming for those who cannot attend in person. The second day will be an interactive in-person event at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh with workshops, parallel sessions and the opportunity to interact with a range of inspirational speakers and hosts. This event is about helping build the workplace that we and our future your colleagues and public deserve. It's about celebrating and inspiring women in leadership to serve as role models. It's about helping workplaces identify barriers and find workable solutions to attract a more diverse workforce. And it's about working together towards broader societal impacts, including pay equity. We have an incredible range of speakers lined up for you, including Professor Dame Sally Davis, the previous CMO for England, and Professor Dame Carrie McEwen, the chair of the GMC, amongst a range of inspirational experts from fields across medicine, finance, leadership and management, business and education. We hope to see you there. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Dr. Marilena Giannudi and I am on the Trainee and Members Committee. Today I am honoured and delighted to introduce to you Victoria Watson. She is an ACP in cardiology working at Bradford Teaching Hospitals. She's got years of experience being the lead of the chest pain service and the lead ACP of urgent care and medical specialties. So Vicky, welcome. Hello, good afternoon. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. As you and I, and I think everyone working in medicine knows, chest pain is one of the most common presentations, both to A&E and for inpatient admissions. So if you don't mind, I think we should start by just discussing what the chest pain clinic actually offers to patients referred to it. 
Yes, so the Rapid Access Chest Pain Clinic, it used to be a one-stop shop, really, in the days when we used to treadmill chest pain patients who had chest pain that was suspicious of angina. It's a bit less so now because we don't use treadmills quite as often, but it's essentially a service where GPs can refer into the service and patients are seen within two weeks of referral with new or recent onset of chest pain, which is thought to be suspicious of angina. The clinic is now a nurse-led clinic and the patients are seen, they're assessed, a history is taken, and if their pain is thought to be suspicious of angina, then they will be referred on for further investigations, which usually includes CT coronary angiography. Any patients whose history does not sound suspicious of angina will be referred back to the GP. So that's kind of an overview of the service. When you see the patients, would any medications be started on that first consultation with the clinic? Yeah, so patients that we believe do have a suspicious history, we would start them on primary prevention. So usually aspirin, a beta blocker, a statin, and we give them a GTN spray. And then depending on the results of the investigations, we'd then inform the GP that they either should continue or can be stopped in due course and we'd let the GP know. And you mentioned that these are patients from primary care with a suspicion of angina. Does it have to be stable angina or unstable angina? Are there any limitations to that? So ideally, this is for stable angina because anybody with unstable symptoms should really be referred more acutely and probably to our emergency department. So really, we're looking for new onset of stable symptoms. And the investigations that you mentioned are CT coronary angiogram. Do you do any blood tests when the patient presents or any other testing? Yeah, so the majority of our patients, we follow the NICE guidance, so they are referred for CT coronary angiography. And we do kind of baseline blood, so using these full blood count, and we check their full lipid profile. The other test that we do refer for if patients may present, having had a previous history, so they may have been stented in the past and been perfectly stable for a number of years, and then they start to develop symptoms again, those patients can be referred in, and those patients, they wouldn't get referred for CT coronary coronary angiography, they would be referred for either other functional assessments such as myocardial perfusion scanning or dibutamine stress echo, or some patients are referred directly for an invasive coronary angiography. And you mentioned that there was this almost like a two-week wait pathway to be referred into the service. When you do request investigations, is there a set time to which these investigations in an ideal world should be performed? Well, I don't know if there's a set time particularly, ideally as soon as possible, because we want the diagnosis as soon as possible. Here in Bradford, usually the wait is kind of between about three and five weeks for investigation, depending on which sort of test that we refer for. After you've seen the patients done the investigation, what kind of happens after that? Are they called back to discuss the results and kind of plans going forward? Or is that all then done over the phone or virtually or? So with the patients referred to the rapid access chest pain clinic, we don't follow them up. The results come back to the service and any results that are negative as such. So they may be, we would advise to treat risk factors, but they don't need any other intervention or follow-up. Then we would write to the GP and inform the patient of the result of the test. Any patients who have what we would class as positive results so you know they do have some flow limiting disease or you know anything really this is a nurse-led service so anything that the nurses wouldn't be too sure about they would then be referred on to the consultant cardiologist and then they it would be at their discretion whether those patients would be followed up 
Right. Okay. And what are the typical patients that you tend to see in this clinic? In terms of kind of demographic? Yeah. Yeah. Just so so very varied, really. We don't have any specific age restrictions. We do ask GPs to consider, you know, patients under the age of 30, whether actually this could be a true diagnosis of angina, because it is less likely in that age group. But we have seen patients from, you know, age 18 upwards. And certainly there's no age limit on the older end. Again, you know, patients, we've maybe advised GPs to consider kind of maybe medical treatment in the first instance, because those patients, we wouldn't always investigate, we would treat medically in the first instance. And then, you know, in Bradford, we've got a large South Asian population. So we do see quite a large percentage of our patients who are South Asian in their ethnic origin. And I couldn't actually tell you the gender split because I haven't looked at that recently, but it is quite varied. With regards to the actual process, It's just from primary care that patients can be referred to the chest pain clinic. It's not from the hospital, you know, ambulatory care or something like that. So they can refer because we have an acute chest pain service. We actually usually the patients that are admitted. So if they end up on same day emergency care, they can often be seen by a chest pain nurse because that's a seven day service. So we wouldn't ask them to refer to the rapid access chest pain clinic because it would be a repeat assessment. But we do take referrals from other areas within the trust. So, you know, a surgical ward could actually refer a patient if they've been in for something else and were describing angina symptoms. And sometimes ED will refer patients out of hours where we don't have a chest pain nurse working. If they have a patient where the history is quite suspicious of angina, they can refer into the service as well. Right. Obviously, angina is, or chest pain, should I say, is a very common symptom, but it's not just attributed to ischemic heart disease. And you can get these symptoms with valvular heart disease, for example. If at the time of referral, it's unclear as to whether this patient has, for example, aortic stenosis, could they still be referred to the service? Or would we need an absolute, you know, thorough assessment that it's nothing else other than possibly angina? So often patients are referred and particularly in COVID times where patients have maybe been seen more virtually by GPs or telephone consultations, they obviously haven't always examined their patients or they've not listened for a murmur. So we do get referrals in and where patients do end up having a murmur and referred for echocardiogram and we do find aortic stenosis, for example. So it's not an absolute exclusion. What we would say is if the patient does have a very definite murmur, we'd ask the GP really to refer for echocardiogram cardiogram and referral to cardiology outpatient clinic as this is really just an angina clinic but obviously you know you do see patients with other cardiology conditions as well so we would just refer them on as appropriate. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that and again I suppose this is very trust dependent though I can't see many trusts not having an acute chest pain service so how does the chest pain service acutely differ from that of the chest pain clinic? So we are actually quite unique within West Yorkshire for the chest pain service because we provide a seven-day service, 8am to 8pm, where a nurse is available to assess any patient that presents with chest pain, again, which is suspicious of either stable angina or unstable symptoms and potentially an MI. 
So the chest pain nurses basically in reach to our emergency department and our acute medical unit. They also do see patients in other areas of the trust, but it's those two areas where they tend to focus on the same day emergency care. And they will see patients, assess them, take a very focused history. And again, if they feel they need troponin assessment and ECG assessment, then they will do that. And if they need admitting, if they have had an acute coronary event, then they will expedite their admission to our cardiology ward or coronary care unit. So yeah, it's a service which runs seven days a week and we aim to pick up as many of the potential cardiac chest pains as we can, although that is a very busy service. So thinking of it from, you know, the doctor's point of view, what kind of things do we need to know about in order to refer a patient to the chest pain service? Is it literally just based on symptoms and potential risk factors, they would be eligible? Yes. I mean, you know, the kind of demographic of Bradford is that many of our patients have risk factors for coronary heart disease. So we don't just ask for referral on risk factors alone. It is about the history. But if the history is cardiac sounding and is suspicious of either an acute coronary event or a stable angina, then that would be the point to refer the patient. What we tend to find is that a lot of the referrals are on the back of a positive troponin. So we use high sensitive troponin here in Bradford. And unfortunately, that is kind of overused, really. So we do find that a lot of our patients have quite minimally raised troponins for potentially lots of other reasons other than a cardiac cause. So we do seem to have to, I think the service does spend quite a lot of time kind of unraveling that. So I think it's helpful if, you know, troponins are done on the correct patients and then the referrals are made to the chest pain service for the right patients, which are ones that are, you know, have a suspicious history because otherwise we spend a lot of time kind of seeing patients where kind of our value added to that patient patient experience is not really too good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess troponins are very tricky. Each trust will work slightly differently, but certainly with high sensitivity troponins, it means that we're getting a lot of positive, dare I say, results in yeah. the absence of anything actually significant. For people who might be listening to this, who end up triaging patients to think about whether they even need a troponin, what would your advice be? Kind of what should we be asking ourselves before taking that blood test? I guess the majority of it all comes down to history. Is the history suspicious? You know, if you've got an 18-year-old with chest pain, then the likelihood is that's not going to be an acute coronary event unless there's some other factors, you know, such as, I don't know, recreational drugs, etc. So it's about just thinking about what is the likelihood of that being an acute coronary event and just trying to think about what other diagnosis it could be because, you know, if it's a very musculoskeletal sounding pain, you know, it's re- reproducible on movement, then it's less likely to be cardiac. And in which case, you know, it would be worth kind of exploring that in the first instance. Mm -hmm. The chest pain service and the chest pain nurses are always happy to give advice, but it's just if they get inundated with all those non-cardiac chest pains, then they're not helping the patients that they need to be there to help. Yeah. And I guess my biggest bugbear coming at it from a cardiology registrar point of view is the troponins in the context of arrhythmias or tachycardia, which I'm sure you deal with all the time. And that can be quite tricky to know whether it's appropriate to do it or not. But I think it goes back to exactly what you said, that it's all about the history, kind of what started first. 
Yeah, and I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Because, you know, if you've got a troponin rise because of an ischemic event, then, yeah, absolutely, we need to be involved and, you know, there's a reason for that. But we have to consider why the troponin is raised and whether it's raised for another reason because you need to treat the patient for the presenting complaint rather than treating just a raised troponin on its own. Mm-hmm. And moving slightly forwards to the treating of the patient, obviously you mentioned that any patients coming to the chest pain clinic could be or would be started on primary prevention. In the acute environment with the in-reach service, do you again advise on a specific medications, primary or secondary prevention as appropriate and so forth? Yeah, so our nurses, we have a couple of non-prescribers, but they will be prescribing shortly, but all the nurses in the service will eventually be non-medical prescribers. So they would initiate secondary prevention or primary prevention, depending on the history and the setting. So yeah, that's quite important because we want to get them on treatment as soon as possible and on the correct treatment. Mm -hmm. And for more junior members who might be listening to this podcast, what kind of treatment should patients be put on once they've presented in the acute environment? So if it's stable symptoms, then we will prescribe aspirin, a beta blocker, a statin and a GTN spray. If they are describing more unstable symptoms, then in the first instance, they would all get a loading dose of aspirin, 300 milligrams, plus or minus, you know, we give them dual antiplatelet therapy. So depending on how they present, so really we're talking with the acute service and non-ST elevation group, they would ideally be given ticagrelor, a loading dose of 180 milligrams. Sometimes, because our troponin results do come back relatively quickly, sometimes before starting dual antiplatelet therapy, we would wait for the troponin results to come back and have the opportunity to do repeat and serial ECGs just for, you know, to see whether there's any ischemic changes. But we often do start that and then would advise on treatment if the troponin comes back positive. Okay. And you mentioned serial ECGs, which I think is a very interesting concept because it means something different to different people. And when you ask for serial ECGs, you may get them, you know, once every five minutes, you may get them once every hour. What, based on your experience, do you think is an appropriate time, other than when the patient has chest pain, to leave in between serial ECGs? So I guess what we'd always recommend, like you just said, is ECGs when they're in pain. We would actually want to repeat the ECG if we then give them treatment and then they are pain free because we want to see whether there's any changes. And then I guess time scale, you know, if they're in our ED or if they're on our SDEC or even our AMU, you know, it's as soon as they present, we probably want to do them providing they were pain free every hour to check that there's no symptoms and then obviously adjust that to if they do get any recurring symptoms. And then once they're admitted, and they have the diagnosis maybe of an MI, then we would want to do those at least daily. Mm -hmm. But again, we would do them more frequently if required. So if they got further symptoms. And what do you think is the biggest learning point that you could give to junior doctors who are perhaps, you know, very scared of cardiology, very scared of chest pain? I don't know why, but I think for anyone working outside of cardiology, it can seem a bit of a daunting specialty. And certainly chest pain can instill fear in junior doctors. So what would your advice be to treating and dealing with those patients? 
That's a very difficult question, really. I think it's just don't be too scared of it. You know, if you have somebody who's got pain and it sounds like it's ischemic pain, you know, give them treatment. Don't be scared to give them GTN spray. Obviously, monitor the blood pressure, have them sitting or lying down. But just keep reevaluating. So, you know, make sure that you are repeating those ECGs and that you get advice early. So if it is something that is a bit out of your comfort zone, you know, here in Bradford, you can ring a chest pain nurse. You could ring me as the ACP. You can ring a registrar or even the consultant on call and they will give you advice on what to do so I think you know the key thing is that they're never alone there's always somebody that you can ask for advice and no questions are that question yeah definitely from my point of view it would be just keep monitoring that patient those ECGs you know if needs be don't even disconnect them from the monitor if you don't have a monitor just keep them on that ECG machine and just keep taking them yes and yeah, yeah and cardiac monitoring is really important because you know you've got to remember acute coronary syndromes you know it's a spectrum and you know you may have a patient who presents with maybe unstable angina symptoms or a non-ST elevation MI but that can progress and they can develop ST elevation and then you know here in Bradford that changes what happens to them because then we need to start thinking about referral for primary PCI and transfer to leads. So it is important to keep them on the monitor in that early phase just to make sure that things are settling. Yeah. And certainly for anyone not working in a primary PCI centre, it's really important to know where your nearest one is. So just make sure that you have an awareness of that sooner rather than later when you start any job. Yeah. Vicky, I think that's great. I don't know if there's anything that we've really missed for our listeners with regards to both kind of the primary care aspect of dealing with chest pain and more the acute chest pain service. Any kind of closing thoughts from your point of view? No, again, I think it's just to reiterate about the troponin use because we do really do too many troponins. So it's just thinking about when you're taking a troponin and, you know, you're interpreting the result of a troponin, it's putting it into that clinical context of whether, you know, whether it is something cardiac, so some, you know, whether it's ischemic or whether it's arrhythmia or whether it's actually raised for another cause, because it's all about that kind of taking that history, really, which I just think is the key thing, which I think we miss. And I think when it gets busy and, you know, our EDs are very busy at the moment, moment it's easy to kind of forget that and forget the clinical context yeah no I could not agree more yeah so please always be careful they say what 80 to 90 percent of your diagnosis is in the history so take that time because it will help you absolutely thank you so much for your time Vicky that's been very very helpful and have a good rest of your day you too you're welcome